IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review the new album by Low. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, the new mayor of Chicago, Ian Cohen. <laughs> Ian, how are you? You know, you're going with the spoiler alerts in your introductions these days. Um, well, but... yeah, I like to shake it up. I mean, well, because you're we're, we're recording this pod a day earlier than we normally do because yeah. you are going to hop a plane. You're going to Chicago to see some Chicago blues, I think, because you're big blues guy right is that why you're going to chicago or yeah going going to chicago the the uh, big easy as it's called um <laughs> have some deep, dish, some deep dish pizza um and uh have some goose island beer i'm trying to think of other chicago yeah uh, <laughs> go here. see go see the bean take a picture for my tinder account no i'm just playing um, i got uh, it'd be old style light that's the chicago <laughs> beer not goose yeah. island that's too uh that's too niche it's yeah OSL, though yeah, but shout out to the Faye Webster uh, collaboration uh, with Goose Island. I, I hope many people get drunk off that shit at Pitchfork Festival. But um, yeah, uh, you know, every episode that we record in, in some way feels like a transmission from the future because we record it, you know, a day or so before it actually airs. And, you know, by the time this one airs, I'll have uh, gone on my, you know, been on my first uh, flight since the pandemic. I'll have I'll be going to see my first festival since the pandemic, my first indoor show um, since the pandemic. You know, after much deliberation, I decided the uh, dog leg Oso Oso after party show was something that I'd be interested in seeing. Also, retirement parties playing too. Shout out to them. Uh, oh, man. So, I mean, more more than anything, this is really just a fact finding mission to see about the viability of us following through on kind of doing a college game day live. Oh, that's version right. Of Pitchfork Festival. Well, yeah, we should, yeah. Did we officially say you're, you're going? You're not going to see Chicago Blues. You're going to see. Oh no, I'm going to see all. You're going to Pitchfork Festival. I'm going to Pitchfork Festival with leaving the leaving you know some space open for me to see you know uh, Smooth Eddie Hazel or whatever other blue like blind uh, blind Justin uh, Tipperton or whatever. Go see. What, uh, are, go see are, Sun are Seals. Sun, you know, do you know Sun Seals? <laughs> no. What do those people call each call themselves these days? Are they still using like blue, like Alcohawk Slim or something like that? I don't think so. I think oh. I, th- I think we've moved beyond that. But you know, Sun Seals that was a uh, reference for all the fish heads in the house. They know who Sun Seals is. <laughs> I don't know if we want to go too deep into that, but you know, because they covered <laughs> a Sun Seals song, great blues man from the seventies, who I, who I believe has passed on uh, many years ago. Um, so I mean. Because I haven't been to Pitchfork Fest since 2013. 13? So yeah. I haven't been there in a while. And I realized this morning, I was like, why haven't I been there? Uh, and I realized that uh, I used to live in Milwaukee. Right. I lived there in the late aughts and early 2010s. That's when I worked at the AV Club. And it was, you know, Milwaukee's like an hour and a half away from Chicago. So I, it was very easy to go. Now I live about seven hours away. So it's a, it's a bit of a hike. I'm also going to Chicago the following weekend. To see uh, John Mayer front the Grateful Dead at the Wrigley Field, uh, Dead & Co. And I'm Priorities. Going with, uh, well, you know, I'm going with former Pitchfork writer Rob Mitchum, so it's sort of like a mini Pitchfork Fest for us. But you, because I mean, are you actually going to watch the bands, or are you just going to be like, you know, talking to music writers the whole time? Because that's what most music writers do. <laughs> you have the VIP section, and you just drink free beer and and talk with other music writers. Okay, so I, now that I think about it, I think 2013, last year you went, I think that was the year we actually first met in person. Cause I think it I, must have been. Yeah, because I remember that morning because I you 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 had visited uh, Andrew Garrick's house where I was staying. Yes. And I have like a distinct memory of like after, like in the same kitchen uh, that we were hanging out, like later that day, I wrote... Um, I was writing a review for the reissue of uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Pisces Iscariot. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the story checks out. But, no, this is my first Mike time. Mike Powell go- was there, too. Mike Powell was there. Shout out to Mike Powell. I haven't talked to him in a while. We miss Mike Powell. We do. But, yeah, I, I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head as far as, like, the, the actual purpose of, like, Pitchfork Festival. I mean, look, uh, there's a lot of bands that I do want to see. Um, I think it'll be 
great to see, um, you know, Oso Oso play, Dogleg play, Barty Strange play. You know, I think I think we've like tripled the token DIY slash emo representation. I was this gonna year. say, and those are three great. Uh, acts to see a yeah. pitchfork. If you're going to pitchfork, definitely see those three. Like, who are the headliners? Is it uh, Phoebe, so Bridgers? Phoebe Bridgers? Um, right. Saturday night is St. Vincent, and okay. Sunday night is Erica Badu. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's just a, a little bit of an alteration from the one they planned on 2020, but it still holds up. But I mean, you're right in that a lot of these bands that are playing are ones that I ha- I've seen or can see in a normal year like a billion times and it like the 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 explicit purpose of pitchfork festival especially for someone like myself is to meet all the people who like vaguely annoy me on twitter and realize oh yeah i like that person like it's it's a real healing process and the fact that i haven't done it since 2018 i think has informed some of my attitudes towards music writing as a whole so um it's really like a spiritual journey if you will I mean, one thought I had about you going to Pitchfork Fest is, is there like, like a senior section in the VIP? <laughs> because like, like for all the middle-aged writers like, like us, because I feel like, because I remember when I went, I was uh-huh. in my late 20s, early 30s, and I feel like most of the writers there are in their 20s. Uh, so I wonder like if they can they have like a seniors tour like they do for golf, if they have that for the, for like the older writers backstage the rock, the rock like, and fun zone <laughs> like like comfortable chairs for you all to sit in like some recliners you know in case your knees get tired you know all those types of things i wonder if they will do that for like the older writers there because you know because <laughs> now you know pitchfork's been around long enough now that yeah the veterans are you know getting up there yeah i mean it's look as far as every any festival that i've ever been to like this one is the most amenable to people who uh, want to sit down for most of the festival. Like it's, <laughs> I, and I mean that in the sense that it's like, it is a collection of by and large, you know, Chicago people and music nerds. You know, it's like, I, I, maybe people go there to see and be seen, to have, you know, candid pictures taken, or they bring out their best, like, uh, problematic Indian headdress a la Coachella, but <laughs> I don't know. Are people still doing the headdress? I feel like you, there's no excuse. There was never an excuse for it, but no. these days, hopefully now that festivals are coming back, we can now say, okay, no more with the headdress, because yeah. that that's a terrible look. <laughs> yeah, don't just, do that. It, among other things, just like, why why that in 100 degree weather but i mean i think that's an entirely different discussion and one that i would love to have about like how festival couture has changed since i mean i haven't been to coachella since 2015 um and i imagine that fashion has evolved like 15 times over but i mean are this are the same jokes that that we've been making for years and years and years about like the way people dress and oh I'm gonna go see Mac DeMarco and Little Dragon and Run the Jewels like in Future Islands. I mean I got to come up with new jokes, man. Like this is actually really scary as we as we approach this new era of festival having. So I'm just imagining like a losing <laughs> my edge type song where James Murphy is listing uh, tour attire. Like throughout the years, and like how, yeah, in 1968, I saw you with your flowers in your hair, and blah blah blah. And now you feel like, okay, I've seen all this other stuff, but now it's 2021. I'm losing my edge. I don't know what the kids are wearing <laughs> to shows. Are they still, you know, doing these elaborate getups, or maybe they're going in the opposite direction? Maybe it's like normcore now. Yeah. Normcore, I feel like that term is probably. Five or six years old. I've just dated myself by saying that. I don't know. I mean, you'll have to do some reconnaissance at Pitchfork, and you can come back next week and and do some reporting and Andy Cass and investigation. (laughs) Yeah, fat. We we we're 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 going into fashion, which is which was really the end game all along. I mean, like I'm just gonna spend while I pack tonight a good 30 minutes determining okay gray t-shirt black t-shirt white t-shirt like am i gonna go out on a limb here uh yeah or just like two black t-shirts and a gray t-shirt so i I got a lot i got a lot of things to consider tonight i mean 
this uh, this seems like a great scheduling change in terms of the weather because oh yeah, uh, Chicago in, in fall is going to be pretty lovely. You know, yeah. barring any type of rain or anything, hopefully that won't happen. No, but I think the weather's going to hold up. It'll probably be in the mid seventies, maybe low eighties. Uh, nice mid seventies to high eighties. The problem is, like, what the fuck am I supposed to do when it gets to fifty-seven degrees at night? Well, Ian, that's why it's good for you to come to the Midwest. Yeah, good for you to come to the real America, the heartland. It'll toughen you up before you go <laughs> back to California. Yeah, you know, you'll you'll feel some of that Midwest early autumn air. Yeah. It'll only happen, I guess, late at night. If you're like out there, I don't think it'd be. 57 still like i don't think it'd be that low like when the last headliner's playing when you're watching phoebe bridgers do her (laughs) thing chill over the air i don't know maybe it'll make me stronger odds are it'll just make me whinier about the weather so you know there's also (laughs) that possibility what is it in san diego these days Uh, i'm gonna i I haven't get uh, i haven't checked today but i'm imagining it's 78 uh let's let let, let's consult my weather app oh check this out it's gonna be uh, 82 today. Oh, shit. I'm missing a... Yo, it's going to be high 80s this weekend. God damn it. You know, this is a great uh, thing for us, by the way, talking about the weather. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope People love it. Out- <laughs> when we talk about like what the weather's like where you are, where I am, we'll talk about weather in the future. Mm. Which will not be the future when people hear this. It'll be maybe the past. Uh, I think I think it's a great development for us on this show um one thing we should talk about quick because we're not going to review this album but i feel like we should talk about it in the banter at least the banter section of our show uh which is certified lover boy the the drake record which by the way like did this even need to be an album it should have just been the album title like yeah just the idea of an album called certified lover boy you don't really need actual music attached to it. And like that album cover too. Like I wish yeah. it just would have been an album cover and an album title. Um, but have you spent a lot of time with this record in the past? I week? mean, I've spent a lot of time with this record to the point where I have to just completely alter my expectations and my critical judgment. It's Cause you know, it's like, I hear the, uh, with the ho ratio, I'm like David Caruso. I'm like, that's an awesome line. It's like also, like, was it worth spending 60 minutes to get there? Is Like, I, I'm really grasping for straws as far as my ability you to You didn't like the it. I'm Too Sexy sample on that uh, future I uh, I mean, thug song? That's all. I was go kidding. for it, man. It's, it's terrible. That was it's, awful, It's man. terrible, but it's, like, great. It's, like, t- it's like knowingly terrible. Right. Um, and I think there's that component of it. But, and, I mean, Drake is someone who... Used to like, I'm going to sound like such like such a lame right now by saying he used to make albums with the real narrative arc, but like he did, and they were just as long as this one. But now, I mean, this is like content in its most pure form. It is 80 minutes of music meant to be strip mined for memes and Instagram captions, and you know what? Like he's really good at that, but. Also, between him and Kanye, they've released like three hours of combined of music uh, that bore the shit out of me. Which is, you know, imagine us having that conversation at the table at Pitchfork Fest 2013 in the year that, you know, we saw uh, Yeezus and nothing was the same. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, (laughs) you know, with Donda, and I said this last week, that I think that there are some strong moments on that record if you had made it a 10 song record i think that would have been a quite strong kanye record even like, like 12 of, songs yeah, 10 or 12 like, songs with like two songs that like people think are terrible so there's right. something to talk about but it would have been know? like if it was that album you would have thought oh this is like a pretty good album like i'm yeah. surprised this is maybe even like a mini comeback for him yeah. whereas the drake album i think is more consistent throughout but there just aren't the peaks you know yeah. uh and you know i think the thing with drake and i'm going to compare him to the alt metal band Tool. Okay, in a we, very we, just, way. we just end IndieCast how because this is like this is like the terminus of IndieCast where you make like a Tool Drake comparison. Well, like, I, I just in this respect that like I think with Drake, you know, Drake makes very long albums that a large cult of devotees will insist are all masterpieces. Okay, which is very similar to Tool. Like Tool will make records that. Tool fans will love, and that's really who they're making the records for. And I think Drake, 
for as big of a pop phenomenon as he has been in the past decade, and it seems pretty clear that he is maybe the single most influential pop artist of the last 10 years. I mean, like, certainly during the 2010s, like, he was the man. It seems like he's now transitioned to the, like, I'm catering to the Drake people, uh, you know, with this record. And the Drake people will love this record, and they'll get very upset when Pitchfork gives it a 6.6. I think they, I think that's what they gave it this week, which it was is, higher yeah. than Donda. Higher than Donda. Um, and, and higher than Peppa Pig. So above the yes. Peppa perimeter. So congratulations to Drake, to, to uh, Drake on that. <laughs> Drake. To, to, to Drake. That was a Freudian slip uh, Ooh, there. Talking. Shots fired. But, but uh, no, I mean, again, I think this record is like pretty listenable when it's Yeah, on, it's totally listenable. But it just doesn't really stick uh, with you like after the fact. But I think that's uh, kind of the point. Yeah, like, exactly. He's he, you know, he's gonna have a huge audience for the rest of his career, and they're gonna eat albums like this up. Like it's, yeah. every time he puts it out, every you know, couple years, drop a certified lover boy, kind of do the same thing, those mid tempo jams, and like have some cheesy one liners over it, and people will eat it up. So you know, God bless Drake. You got yeah. a thing. You're like Tool now. You're the Tool of uh, mm. pop rap. Uh, of the modern era, so congratulations to Drake. I I don't even know where to take that, but I mean I I think that like the comparison of like uh, of Kanye and Drake. I mean like I, I can imagine. I think him his audience and Kanye's audience, although there's a lot of overlap, there's like a very different relationship with that music. For example, like ten years from now, like twenty thirty, if if we're all still alive and music publications exist in some shape, form or fashion, I guarantee there is going to be somebody who is going to posit Donda as a misunderstood masterpiece. Like, Oh, they're already doing that. There's lots of people. I mean, maybe not professional critics, but I see that online all the time. But there's people that I saw someone the other day tweet that they felt like Donda was a good entry point for, young Kanye West fans, which blew me away. I didn't really understand. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I mean for people like, who have no working knowledge of old Kanye, maybe it is. But I also, but like, I don't know how you can, I don't think that's going to happen for a certified lover boy. Like the most, the hottest take that you could possibly do is like, well, maybe it's actually better than views, which is like, whoa, man, because I, the Drake fan base also thinks views is a classic. Like, I think Drake is, reached a kind of a post like even he knows that these albums are just like kind of pointless for him they're just like content mines so good you know what know yourself he has a song called that if there was like a post nothing was the same greatest hits album though with with like a drake compilation i think that'd be probably pretty great you know like if you just had like a 20 song (laughs) compilation from like these last what like three or four records that he's put out. I, yeah. I mean, I would, I'd be curious to hear that. I'd like to hear a Drake Stan. I'm sure someone has done that, but oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that would deliver. You know, I was wondering if for you, like, you know, cause there's this Kanye Drake feud going on and like Andre 3000 got dragged into it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm someone, you know, I, I love rivalries, you know, I wrote a book about it. I used to do a podcast on it. I, there's something about this that just feels like pure marketing to me and it's hard for me to get into it for that reason. I mean, do you think this is like a legit thing between these two guys? <laughs> you know, I, I, I do. I think all rap beefs to a certain degree, uh, at least, you know, post Pac and big, uh, are marketing. Uh, but I don't know. It, it, it uh, who the fuck knows what either of those two are thinking? Like they, neither of those guys have had like a normal day in at least 15 years so i have no idea what's going through the minds of them like i don't even think that they're competing in any realistic way no Um, they're not and i mean the thing with both of them and i get this sense listening to their latest records is that i i guess i i wonder to what degree they're still invested in like being great (laughs) <laughs> or if it's just about brand management at this point. I think they're both I, invested in being great. I just think they have very, very different ideas uh, about what being great means for them at this juncture of their careers. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> in terms of like Kanye, is his idea of being great is that somehow he wants to, um, you know, talk about his divorce and Jesus 
and like the prison state like simultaneously like yeah. it's like he's all over the place and drake like what 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 do you think he's trying to do at this point like uh, I, just be drake like just continue <laughs> to just continue to like uh ease through mega celebrity cuz i mean like if you when when you when you're that famous for that long um, there's usually like some sort of significant backlash or a dip in quality of music or someone you just do something that really screws things up. Like even Jay-Z, like someone who was otherwise like the model of consistency for hip hop. Like he had an era where he, you know, he retired, he retired, then unretired and then made a bunch of albums that no one liked, but had huge hits. And Drake has just been just to keep, just to keep the empire going. Yeah, that's again. Why I don't blame I think, him. Yeah, exactly. That's why I just think it's more about like maintaining a brand than like. I mean, I will say I think Kanye is trying to be great, maybe yeah. in his own way with the album like Donda, because that that album does have a lot of ambition. Whereas mm-hmm. Certified Lover Boy does seem like, hey, I'm I'm Drake doing my Drake thing again. Yeah. And didn't you like it the last time? <laughs> you know, I guess we'll yeah. see. Um, I mean. Both of those albums are doing extremely well. Oh they yeah, Donda Donda's the audience. biggest album of twenty twenty one so far. Right. And Certified Lover Boy, I mean, we don't have the we haven't number crunched this yet, but I would imagine It'll be bigger. It'll you think it'll be bigger than Donda? Uh, I, I think it definitely like I, I'd be shocked if it wasn't, but the Spotify yeah, numbers I, looked bigger than Donda's did after a week. Like yeah. just looking at the individual track numbers. Um but yeah, I don't know. There were more songs on Donda though, so you know maybe that gives Kanye the edge, just because uh, he put up more content than, yeah. than Drake did. Yeah. Uh, we'll find out I, soon. Um, let's move on to our mailbag segment uh, again. If you if you want to reach out to us, we're at indiecastmailbag at gmail You can also hit us up on Twitter at indiecast one. Uh, we've been having a good time over there. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, if you just like the jokes that we run into the ground on this podcast, we run them further into the ground on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that. Uh, this first question is from Will in Connecticut. Do you want to read this question, Ian? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's let's continue to mix it up. We're, we are <laughs> we are not coasting. Um, all right. So this is Will from Connecticut. We just cracked 60 degree weather after this week's deluge as we received remnants of Hurricane Ida. As the crisp fall weather is, hopefully, just around the corner, I was curious what your quintessential fall albums are. This time of year has always been so deeply connected to music for me, and I imagine the same is true for both of you. My guess is Ian would default to something like American Football's first self-titled album, and Steve will say something like Harvest Moon by Neil Young. (laughs) Uh, Will... Obviously, a an astute uh, critic yes. of IndieCast. Yes. I'd love to hear what your top three to five fall albums are. Love the show, Will. Oh, thanks, Will. Uh, I love this topic. I love fall albums. Um, mm. It's hard for me to, to delineate sometimes between my favorite albums and my favorite fall albums because fall is maybe my favorite season, and I love listening to music in the fall. So that means any album I like I would be a great fall album. I'm curious though for you because you're in, you're in San Diego. Yeah, <laughs> it's like 78 degrees every single day, so you don't have a fall. Like, do you miss fall? So yeah, just to, just to underscore my lack of credibility in this topic, I've lived in LA um, from the summer of 2006 to the summer of 2016. San Diego from the summer of 2017 to present day. With there was one fall. One autumn in 2016, which I lived in Kentucky, and I was so stoked to experience seasons again. And what I remember is that it was super hot until like October. It rained for a couple weeks, and then it was winter. And so <laughs> that 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 that's that's what the 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 South Midwest will always be to me. But um, uh, you mentioned American Football self titled. That is a distinctly end of the summer album for me, which is very different than a fall album. Uh, I mean, the summer ends, uh, for example. Also, I'd put Death Cab for Cutie's Plans in there as this album that ushers in, in the end, ushers the end of fall into the beginning of, uh, or the end of summer into the beginning of fall. I always associate that album with the beginning of college football season, which is really the only connection I have left to uh, the season of autumn. And so... You know, when I think about like, okay, what albums do I listen to when the weather changes and 
Uh, college football is back on a Saturday. So I have to think of Animal Collective's feels. They're a very seasonal band. That's the one that feels most autumnal to me. Uh, similarly, I would put My Morning Jacket's Z in there uh, as well. So I, more or less my experience of fall cuts off in 2005. So uh, yeah, if there's been any great autumnal albums that have happened in the past uh, 16 years, we're going to have to hear about it from Steve. So well, it's, th- it's, those are mine. It's funny that you mentioned My Morning Jacket Z because I had It Still Moves by My Morning Jacket. On, That's on End of Summer album to me. Initial list. See, why Why is the End of Summer album to you rather than a fall album? Because I always think of it as like, what was I doing when it actually came out? And that one, I believe, came out in late August when I was still in Georgia. Uh, and it was extremely hot outside when that album dropped. And so like, I'll always think of it as a very sweaty album. Likewise, when I saw that, um, when I saw them tour that album in Georgia, it was maybe like 105 degrees inside the 40 watt. Uh, so that is just a very, very, uh, it came, it came out on September 9th. How about that? So it really uh, is like a personal connection for you it's like what evokes it in my mind yeah it's a very a like period it's just a very sweaty album to me because it's like for me i tend to associate fall albums with a certain kind of like crunchiness and ter- like musically and then like a melancholy aspect because fall is a very cozy season but it's also kind of a sad season because summer's coming to an end you know winter's around the corner everything's really beautiful but things are also dying and you could see that happening so it's a, I, I tend to like music that evokes that so i mentioned it still moves by my morning jacket i usually listen to blonde on blonde a lot by bob dylan that's also like my favorite album of all time or one of my favorites so that goes back to what i said before about just wanting to hear my favorite albums at this time of the year i'd also say like listening to live grateful Secret dead somebody from throwing copper. 60s. Oh, okay. Oh no, 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 not, <laughs> not uh, yeah. You paused copper. so long on live that I, I just know. Had to... <laughs> uh, Lakini's juice. That's like the heat of the summer. That's when you uh. want the Lakini's juice. But if, <laughs> I was talking about like live Grateful Dead bootlegs oh. from the '60s specifically. '70s Dead is good too in the fall, but I really like '60s Dead. You get a good dark star in the fall on headphones, watching leaves fall to the ground. It's, it's pretty awesome. More recent albums, I would say Steve Gunn's uh, Eyes on the Lines, Great Fall album. And I would also include this album that I listened to a lot when I was at a cabin very recently, <laughs> Tip of the Sphere by Cass McCombs. Great cabin album, oh. Great Fall album that came out in 2019. So that's like a modern fall classic for me. I'd go with Catacombs on that one. That Catacombs, that's a good fall album too. That's a great album, but just like the, like the last, like, Two or three Cass McCombs records have been pretty crunchy, pretty jammy, and it's just like what I want to hear at this time of the year. But I could list 50 more, and I'm sure I'll think of that after we get done with this episode. Uh, Let's move on to our second question here. This is from Wes in Lakewood, Colorado. Wes writes, One interesting thing I noticed during the episode about the new Turnstile album was how you were talking about melodic hard rock and how not many bands seem to make it anymore. Um... and I'm curious what you mean by this, because there's actually a lot of melodic hard rock out there these days. I can hear a good deal of it if I jump on the Rock This playlist or the Rock Hard playlist on Spotify. Or even if I tune into Hard Rock FM radio here in Denver, bands like Bring Me the Horizon, A Day to Remember, In This Moment, Volbeat, Five oh, Figure yeah. Death Punch, uh, and even bands like Nothing But Thieves and Royal, and Royal Blood. Um, I get that a lot of this kind of rock music isn't really talked about among music critics or the greater music discourse, and when it is, it's usually looked at with with disdain. What do you guys think the reason for this is, and why is Turnstile the band that seems to have turned a lot of heads toward melodic hard rock as opposed to any other as opposed to any other band? And that's from Wes in Lakewood, Colorado. It okay. I don't remember exactly <laughs> what I said in that episode because I caught some flack for this on on Twitter. I don't think I said that there's no melodic hard rock bands. I think I meant like there's not enough good melodic hard rock bands. Uh, and I would include uh, a lot of the bands that this listener just mentioned in the like not good pile. And you know, the thing is, is like I, I want to make a case for like Five Finger Death Punch 
being this like <laughs> underrated band that like critics are unfairly ignoring. You know, I because I like I want them to be good. And actually, you know, he the listener mentioned um, that band Volbeat, uh, which is a band. Uh, they're a Danish band. Although for a long time I thought they were German because they kind of reminded me of the Scorpions. But I remember mm-hmm. I, I wrote something nice about them in 2013. They put out a record called Outlaw Gentlemen and Shady Ladies. That's you, not a Sturgill Simpson album. No, it's not. Have you heard that record? <laughs> Outlaw Gentlemen and Shady Ladies by Volbeat? <laughs> you know, I got some homework to do on the flight. <laughs> you know, I haven't heard that record since 2013, but I looked at my archives and apparently I liked it in 2013. I don't really have any interest in playing it now. But I liked it eight years ago. Um, but I don't know. I think a lot of those bands, you know, uh, that you hear on FM radio, um, and I'll just use Five Finger Death Punch as sort of like the figurehead of that. I don't know. Again, like I want to defend them, but when I actually listen to them, I just find it to be really obnoxious and horrible. Yeah. I mean, I once wrote a piece defending Nickelback, and part of the justification for that was I said that there's bands that are way worse than Nickelback. And I think I use five finger death punch as an example. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I mean, yeah, in one respect, critics, like even if these bands were good, I don't think critics would be writing about them because it's just not something critics usually gravitate to historically writing about hard rock, at least like mainstream critics. But a lot of these bands are terrible, aren't they? Or are you going to defend these bands? I'm on the same page. I mean, there's such a, there is such a lane open for some writer to be the champion for these bands, but this like this stuff has historically like not even mocked by critics, like just not even acknowledged. And you know what? In a lot of ways, rightfully so. Um, I mean, you can you could say, well, you know, critics like pop country, but like there there is definitely a cachet to being like the country whisperer especially if like you're a coastal writer because it's got its own galaxy of like pop stars and pop songwriters and it it's almost tangential to like hip hop and the way it can move culture but this okay like i think we just kind of have to acknowledge that a lot of music criticism is like cultural criticism as in like judging music based on its perceived fan base and you mentioned turnstiles like well why did, why turnstile not these bands these are the bands that like th- Turnstile is playing a lot of the festivals that feature these bands. They usually take place in deeply, deeply red states, like maybe Corn or Stained or uh, bands like that might headline, and then Turnstile might be on there. And these are the bands that take up like the second line of that festival. It's like these bands are huge. Uh, they probably have racked up hundreds of millions of streams on Spotify's like Rock This um, you know, playlist. I remember hearing a Theory of a Dead Man song when I had to listen to the radio in a van I had to drive for work. And it's this stuff is like actually bad. And, you know, more than that, it really it's bad in a way that seems very regressive because it's almost like uniformly male. It's almost uniformly white and it's uh, uniformly uh, kind of troglodyte and it's uh in its views on certain things. So uh, there's ri- there's not a lot to salvage. Um, that being said, like Royal, like a band like Royal Blood though, that can be like that band is damn near Radiohead compared to right. what they mentioned. Like their new album sounds a lot like that death from death from above 1979 song, sexy results. Uh, you know, they they, there's something to that. And like, by comparison, a band like Wolf Alice can really be seen as like Radiohead compared to what, what they're competing. Well, against. I was gonna say I think like the Radiohead of the sphere is Queens of the Stone Age. You know, like they're like the like the brainy yeah. band that kind of can mix it up here. And because you mentioned Royal Blood, like their first record sounded like Queens of the Stone Age. Absolutely. And and there's some bands that are in that vein uh, that can get in get on the radio and and that would be i guess the intellectual wing of of rock radio relatively speaking but uh you know my my feeling on this is that right now there's a music writer a future music writer who's six years old or so like they were born in 2015 and that person in the year like 2040 is going to write a think piece defending all these bands and shaming people like you and me 
for being snobs and, and not getting it. And uh, I'll be in my late 60s by then. And I look forward to being outraged by that thing yeah, piece. I welcome the, it. The, yeah, exactly. You know, you... If, if you're in this game as a music critic, you know that eventually someone younger than you is going to, like, murder you in a restaurant, you know, like, <laughs> like figurative, figuratively speaking, yeah. you know, that the, the younger generation will rise up and they'll, they'll be mad at you that you didn't like a maligned band or genre from the past. Because yeah. I, I, I will vouch for a lot of the stuff I heard on alt-rock radio as a DJ in 2001. Like, if, if you're listening, like, Injected or Edema or Chevelle. Right. Yeah, I, I fucked with some of your songs. <laughs> you know, I mentioned Nickelback earlier. I mean... Oh, uh, this is how you remind me is a great song. I mean, Nick, song. Nickelback is like the Beatles compared to these bands. I mean, <laughs> because Nickelback, whatever you want to say about them, they do have, like, some... They've got, like a like, a handful of songs that are, like, Genuine pop hits, inescapable. Yeah, they were they were like high charting songs, like on the, you know, Hot 100. You know, they were competing with, you know, the Mariah Careys and uh, Whitney Houston's of the world. You know, for a while, um, maybe not Whitney Houston at that point, but um, <laughs> you know, and these bands don't have they don't have a How You Remind Me. They don't have you know. I will say that I think the best Nickelback song is actually that Chad Kroger song from Spider Man. Oh yeah, Josie Scott. Yeah, yeah. The, the only guy in history, to my knowledge, who has collaborated with Chad Krager, Jay Z, and Three Six Mafia. Is it is it Krager or Kroger? I'm gonna say Krager. It's O E. So okay. like, I'm I'm gonna go. How do I not know how to pronounce this guy's name? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever actually heard <laughs> anyone say it out loud. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, say like the lead singer of Nickelback's name out loud. It's always like the oh, Nickelback shit. guy. M- M- Maybe I need to skip Pitchfork Festival and go to Rocklahoma instead. <laughs> I'm letting our people down. That's where we're going to do our college football game day. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Uh, well, let's get to the meat of our, of our episode here. Uh, for those who don't know, Lowe is a band from Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, they're centered on a married Mormon couple who are now in their early 50s named Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker. Uh Based on that description, you might not expect them to be indie phenoms at this point. But uh, their 13th album, which comes out today, today as in the day that this podcast goes live, it's called Hey What. And um, I think it's maybe the album of the year. If the album, if, if the year ended today, this would be my album of the year. And I suspect that there will be other critics who feel the same way. Yeah. Uh, this is a band, you know, again, they've been along for a long time. They put out a dozen records before this. And uh, I know that you're a fan of this record as well. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, you know, before we get into the record, I'm wondering, like, what your relationship was with Lowe before this album. Because for me, this is always a band that I, I thought was good. I liked their albums. I thought they were very consistent and I respected their catalog. But they were mm-hmm. never a band that I loved. Like, the, you know, the, there's albums here and there, like The Great Destroyer is a record I like a lot. Uh, uh, was it Drums and Guns is the record after that? That's, yeah, that, that's the one after that. Um, those records I like quite a bit. Some of the 90s records I, I liked, but they never really blew me away, really until this album. And, and also, this album has made me fall in love with the predecessor record, which was Double Negative, which was also produced by B.J. Burton. He's produced their last three records, uh, and you may know him. He was one of the masterminds behind the Bonnie Vera record, 22 a million. And you could hear some similarities between what he did with Bonnie Vera and what he did with Lowe. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious for you. Cause like, to me, like, Hey, what is the, the first records of theirs that I really feel like this is like a masterpiece. Like this is a great mm-hmm. record. And it just made me kind of reconsider their, their previous work. Like, where are you at with that? Yeah. I, I, I... You know, to me, they kind of existed on a level below, say, Yola Tango, maybe in the public eye. Like, they're a band that's, like, around, married couple, like, at the center. And they all, like, they they always achieve this level of, like, it's always pretty good, even though they evolve uh, almost constantly. So, for me, my favorite album of theirs is The Great Destroyer. It's the one produced by Dave Fridman. It's that's me the too. one 
Yeah, that's the one that sounds a little bit like Alice in Chains sometimes. And I got to point out, Dave Raposa is a guy, he's like one of the old heads at Pitchfork. He wrote like a 5.6 review what? In, uh, of that album in 2005. And there's like this... There's like this little group of people on Twitter that like Dave's my Dave's my dude. Um, I just gotta say that first and foremost. But like every two or three months, like for the past ten years, we just give him shit uh, for that. It, it was basically like the Turnstile Time and Space review of uh, 2005. Let's just call it that. But um, yeah, that one was my favorite. I liked Drums and Guns a lot. That was a little more that that's an album that I don't listen to a heck of a lot because it's just such a raw, distinct. Uh, produced album but you know after that like they were a band that i would like a song or two off their albums and just think okay new low album that's good and i wouldn't really revisit it like uh ones and sixes like the one produced by jeff tweedy kind of bored me um right so that's where that's where it seemed like they were starting to fade into sort of like the mid period like like we're an older band we're making records but like it's getting a little snoozeville like by then like that what was that called it was the narrow way, something like that. Uh, come on, or it was after come on. God. Uh, anyway, uh, the invisible oh, way, the invisible way, the invisible way. I said the narrow yeah. way. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, my record of like getting two out of three words in an album title correct <laughs> <laughs> continues. You're uh, never gonna miss. You're never gonna. You're never gonna miss certified lover boy though. Let's no. just uh, exactly. But, um, that's that, again. That's the best part of that record is the yeah. title. But yeah, I, I'd say, like double negative. You know, when I first heard the singles, uh, I was excited to uh, be excited about Low again. I thought that album was pretty overrated overall because you mentioned B.J. Burton. I am not a huge fan of 22 A Million, or I think that guy also does some work with James Blake. And I think people are just always kind of suckers for vocal manipulation being the sound of the future. Like, I, Double Negative was interesting to me. Um, well, he manipulated I, the like the music too. I absolutely, mean, I mean that whole thing. I mean, in my review, I the analogy I made was that it sounded like a cassette tape that had been left in a washing machine. Or, you know, or, yeah, it was. Was it their most chill wave album? It, <laughs> in a way, I think it definitely was like sort of like, like an evil chill wave record. Yeah, like, you could describe it as that. But it, the difference with Hey What I find is that it has a lot of the experimentation of Double Negative, and you could definitely say I, you know, I could see people making the argument that Double Negative is the bolder record because Hey What isn't really doing anything that Double Negative hasn't already done. What it does, however, the reason why I like it more is that the vocals on this record are so much more clear, and there's a greater dynamic range between the music which is again distorted and digitally manipulated and and you can't really tell like what instruments are doing what it's a really fascinating record in that regard but it's set against these vocals that come across so clear and it's such a heart of the record and and i think it gives it an emotional impact that even double negative which i think is a powerful record but that's more of like a mood piece and this feels more like a complete album to me yeah, the vocals are what draw me into low to begin with. And uh, while double negative, like, uh, it allowed me to reassess, like, what I like about low, I think that it came at the expense of the vocals. And I also think that <laughs> because that record came out in 2018 and it's just a great album title for the type of album it is, I think it got kind of sucked into in this age of Trump type ambient dissatisfaction. Um, but I think, well, I think, hey, what does everything that album did as far as deconstructing the sound and being aggressive in its use of um, distortion and so forth, but also retaining things I love about Low, which is like the harmonies and uh, the relationship of Alan and Mimi and um, just has like a real lyrical, um, you know, real lyrical thrust that allows me to not have to be uh, (laughs) and not have to like import other narratives onto it. I can really enjoy it for what it is. And also like this album is loud. Like, I don't know if it was just the promo I got, but it is, it it sounds like twice as loud as it's, it sounds like a David Fridman album in that it, like if you put it on any of these songs on a mix, the volume difference between this and everything surrounding it is so extreme that you think you maybe have like a weird leak. Yeah. I mean, it's a great headphones record. Although oh, yeah. it, it might hurt your ears by the end of yeah. it, but I think, uh, you know, I mean, I've listened to it in a couple of different 
uh, avenues. You know, I listened to it in my car. I've listened to it on my laptop. But the headphones experience was the most satisfying uh, for yeah. the record. Um, but yeah, you're right. They're, it's like they play quiet songs very loud. You know, like yeah. there's still that quiet stillness that you expect from a low record. But again, just the intensity of the quietness is like pretty extreme. And again, I think it's like so unique uh, to this band uh, that, uh, you know, I mean, I think I, I've seen people liken this to, you know, like even like a record like Loveless or something, you know. Oh, I was like, thinking more like Yeezus. <laughs> yeah, or like a Yeezus where, again, you have these like very abrasive textures, but then you have moments of beauty interspersed. But um, I don't know. I It's hard for me to think of like another example of a band that's been around this long and, and been this respected that has made this turn in their career so late and, and had it pay off so well. Because uh, again, this is the moment like where bands are kind of. It's like we have our thing, and we're gonna do it. And you admire bands that can, you know, still execute well and everything. But you don't expect something like this, which is like a total left turn that ends up being one of the best things they've ever done. Oh, I, I can think of examples of it, but well, like it's <laughs> yeah, well, well, the I Sun mean, Kill Moon is yeah. example, would, <laughs> or Swans for that matter. But like, yeah, we we. We're, if we're trying to think of like non-canceled bands, uh, it's uh, it's it's you know it's really hard to come by. But yeah, I think it's it's just so crazy to think that in 2021, with everything else being so deconstructed, um, yeah, especially like indie rock, as it were, that this band that's been around since 1993 or so and never has been like the center of discussion, even with things we lost in the fire, might be the you know, that this might be the consensus album of the year, you know, barring any sort of like late Frank Ocean or Beyonce or Kendrick drop, which actually, if any of those three drop, it has not been a good year for uh, pop stars and like people of that nature. Uh, so I don't know, like if Low somehow becomes the album of 2021, like, fuck, man, <laughs> like, like I, maybe this is maybe this is the year for something like that. Yeah. And, you know. You talked about those other acts being canceled. Is Low like the least likely act to be canceled? Like I can't imagine yeah. either one of them, Alan or Mimi, doing something controversial. Yeah, them or Super Chunk or Yola Tango, like those bands with a with a long relationship at the center. But you have like the religious aspect, and they're living like in this like small Minnesota town. I don't know. Maybe they're st- maybe they're dealing meth on the side, and we don't know that yet. <laughs> and we're gonna find out in five years, and we'll all be disappointed. But I don't know. They seem pretty wholesome otherwise yes. and they're also making brilliant music so shout out to low all right we've now reached the part of our episode that we call recommendation corner where ian and i talk about something that we're into this week ian why don't you go first all right so uh as per usual, I'm going to bring up an album that's been uh, overlooked even within like deep emo Twitter. There's a band uh, from Pittsburgh called Brightside. Makes them very hard to search on the internet without uh, finding the killers instead. Uh, they, I guess, surprise dropped an album called 2012 recently. And by surprise drop, I mean, I'm just sort of surprised they're still going. Um, and I mean that with all due respect because they've been kicking around since, say, 2010, uh, I think I saw them open, or well, I know they opened for the uh, co-headlining The World's Beautiful Place Foxy Tour in 2015, uh, and they're just one of those bands that just can't seem to connect um, with the larger audience. They were on Broken World Media, which is uh, kind of a canceled album, uh, kind of a canceled record label, um, and they put out songs here and there, And um, but... You know, this album 2012, it kind of does what they've been doing before, which is a little shoegazy, a little indie pop. And by, by indie pop, I mean like 2011-ish indie pop. I think Foles are becoming this band that's retconned into modern emo, which I'm all for. Um, but this album, it just sounds it, it just sounds like a very well-constructed indie pop album that sounds a lot like 2012. Not in a way that seems like desperate or that that seems like they're just trying to do things to be successful, but it's a style of music that connect with a lot of people back then and it still sounds good now. So 
Um, very low stakes, but very enjoyable indie pop with a little dash of emo or shoegaze or uh, all those other associated things. So Brightside 2012, that is my recommendation for today. And the band I want to talk about is called Silverbacks, not Nickelback, who we talked about earlier in this episode, but they're called Silverbacks. They're uh, a band from Ireland. Uh, they put out their debut album called Fad in, two, in uh, 2020, and it was under my radar at that time. I didn't really hear that record until uh, I heard about the new Silverbacks record, which actually I don't think has been officially announced. They released a single this week uh, called Where My Medals that I like a lot. And uh, it's teasing an album that I believe will be announced soon. But this is a band that, in one respect, you could group into that generation of post-punk bands that have come out of Europe in the past few years that we've talked about on the show. You know, there's definitely that that influence on their music. But they also bring in this uh, 60s jangly guitar rock influence, almost like an Elephant Six element into the music. So... It has the post-punk thing. You have some talky, witty lyrics, but there's also, I think, a greater melodic sensibility to this band than like a lot of the post-punk groups that have come out of England and Ireland in the past few years. Um, so I definitely recommend going on your streaming platform of choice and looking up the song Where My Medals by Silverbacks. Really good single. And then go back and check out Fad, um, which is a good debut record. I actually think the next record that will be announced soon, I believe, uh, is a better record than Fad, but Fad's, a, I think, a good debut, so definitely a band worth keeping an eye on. That is Silverbacks, the sequel to Nickelback. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. Uh, we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 